0: And joining you from the Basque Country, where the 110th edition of the Tour de France will begin next week, and I have arrived rather earlier. My name is Daniel Friber, I'm the host of this week's episode of the Cycling Podcast. That episode won't start on the same frivolous note as usual, for we and the world of cycling are in mourning this week, following the death last Thursday of the Swiss rider Gino Mader after a crash on the descent of the Albula Pass the previous day in the Tour of Switzerland. Gino was 26 years old and in his short career he had already won stages of the Giro d'Italia and the Tour de Suisse and the Vuelta a España's white jersey, that for finishing 5th overall in the 2021 race. The same year Gino had also kept an audio diary for the cycling podcast in the Giro. We knew him a bit, admired him a lot and the connected via the web of comradeship stretches across professional cycling to many individuals who adored him and will be grief stricken for a long time. Our thoughts and deepest sympathy will continue to be with them over the coming weeks against the distracting, though scarcely comforting backdrop of the Tour de France. After last week's interview with James Gay-Reese, executive producer of Tour de France Unchained, the new Netflix docuseries about last year's Grand Boucle, this week's episode was supposed to be a more subjective look at the series by us. You're still going to hear that, but it will come after. First part in which we, that is Lionel Bernie, and I, will discuss, remember and pay tribute to Gino Maida. So I'm going to say hello to Lionel and propose we just start by talking about our personal reactions last week, Lionel, to the awful news.
1: Yeah, hello, Daniel. Well, my first reaction was one of shock and sadness and empathy really for everybody who knew and loved Gino, especially his colleagues in the professional peloton. Um, uh, It's a reminder, not perhaps that we need one of the risks that the riders take, especially in the high mountains, but not necessarily in the high mountains. You know, there is an inherent danger um, associated with professional cycling and uh, after the kind of the first sinking feeling in my stomach when the news kind of flashed across social media um, had sort of subsided a bit it was just that reminder not to take the risks that riders take on a daily basis for granted really I think we all sort of do that in our kind of um you know search for the the entertainment in cycling the the flip side of that coin is that there is considerable risk and uh yeah it's a it's a tragedy for all of those who knew and loved him
0: Yes, Lonnie. I mean, I was, so I'm on holiday at the moment in the Basque Country, as I said, and I was actually walking with my girlfriend on a, a very famous, what's well, it's a very famous destination for cycling in the Basque Country, the Urkiola, the mountain range above Durango, and, well, I'd gone to bed on Wednesday night, like everyone, sort of praying that Gino Maeda was going to be okay, I'm not really, f- hadn't been following the Tour of Switzerland very closely, he knew that he'd crashed and Magnus Sheffield had also been involved in, in a bad crash on the same, we didn't really know at that point whether the crashes were linked whether they'd crashed together, but I spoke to a couple of people in the bahrain Victoria's team that evening, people who knew Gino Maeda, and not because they told me that everything was going to be okay, but that the, the, the the sense I got was that he might pull through. There wasn't really a lot of information about the nature of the injuries. Um, there was some misreporting, I think, on the fact that he was in a stable condition. I think Italian-speaking TV in Switzerland um, reported that. So I suppose, mistakenly, I went to bed on Wednesday, woke up on Thursday under the mistaken impression that that was going to be the case. And we were just about to set out on our walk From or on the Udchiala on Wednesday when a notification oh sorry on Thursday when a notification flashed up on my phone from Lequipe and very bluntly stating that Gino Maida had had passed away and you mentioned the feeling in the pit of your stomach when you get that news um you know this one hit me quite hard um for reasons we'll discuss it later on I think um to do with who Gino Maeda was and our interactions with him my interactions with him and um yeah and then obviously in the subsequent days found out a little bit more um, not that much more about the extent of his injuries and also the dynamic of the crash the crash took place as I said in the introduction to the episode on the Albula pass now this is it's a road that I know a bit as well, I know relatively well. I wrote about it in one of my books on the climbs of the sort of big mythical climbs of Europe. The Albuluk Pass is one of these sort of totemic, huge in scale mountain passes in Switzerland and is very well known to riders in Switzerland, very well known to Gino Mader as well. And it's, you know, my first thought was that it's, it's, a straightforward descent in the it's quite unusual the Albula in that the road coming off the top down to La Punt where the stage finished is almost arrow straight in large part um, and it's not a long descent either down there it's I think seven or eight kilometers so that sort of made me curious and I went back and started looking um, well at whether it'd been pinpointed where the crash had happened how it had happened also previous sort of descents of the Albula and um, having watched a bit of the footage from that day in Juan Ayuso bombing down there to victory and watched also you know the, the descents the last time the Tour de Suisse went down the Albula in the 2013 and 2017 what is clear is how fast that descent is and we always talk about how the roads in Switzerland are you know the surface is always perfect the descents are beautiful but there is a bit of a problem with the descents in the tour of switzerland in that they're almost too good and too fast and sort of anecdotally i have spoken to a number of riders over the years and read interviews with riders over the years where they've talked about the fastest descents they've ever done in their career and it's quite common to hear that they've been done in the tour of switzerland um and watching juan Ayuso also in particular go around the bend where unfortunately gino made a crashed off the side um, not into a deep ravine initially. You know, when you, at first glance, it looks sort of like a grassy bank, but the the drop-off is quite sizable. We think that he might have crashed onto a, a bit of sort of concrete paving down there, but it's not the sort of spectacular, you know, you think back to the crashes like Johann Bruyneel in 1996 Tour de France on the Cormé de Roseland, where he seemed to go off the mountain and sort of disappear. It's not like that at all. It's a sort of grassy bank. But the thing that strikes you when you watch Juan, I used to go around that bend is the speed and it is a descent unfortunately on which the best riders in the world are probably not breaking at all until the last few hairpins into La Punt and I think that's what makes it very dangerous and well Lionel before we started recording today and also well other people over the last week have mentioned the fact that well <laughs> bikes are getting faster and faster and we've talked a lot over the last few years about aerodynamics and usually we're talking about the effect this has on the flat what we don't talk about but again what you hear anecdotally from riders is that where they notice this particularly is at the highest speeds and if riders are going 80 90 100 kilometers an hour which is the case on a descent like the albula then um then they're going to be going even faster now than they were 10 or 15 years ago and whether that necessarily will, will um, exacerbate the impact of crashes, I mean, that's a, a moot point, but it's certainly, um, well, you talked about the, the risk that riders are taking nowadays, and it gives food for thought.
1: Well, earlier today, Daniel, I spoke to Doug Ryder, who is currently the team boss of Q36.5, who were taking part in the Tour de Suisse. But Doug Ryder was also the boss of Team Dimension Data in 2019, Gino Mader's first professional team. Basically, Doug Ryder's team gave made his start in professional cycling and he rode for the team for two years 2019 and 2020 when they were NTT Pro Cycling so uh, Doug wanted to pay tribute to the young man that he knew I mean first of
2: all condolences uh, to everyone on your organisation at Mugino you know, because there must have been quite a few
3: Yeah I mean thanks I mean I think it was yeah I, I, actually it was it was incredible you know when I was in the paddock Of um, the Twitter Swiss on Friday and you just saw the people walking around and coming to see us from staff to riders, um, you know, that were all a part of our team and a part of the team with Gino, like Sobrero and Battistella, and you know, so many of the riders and staff and you know, that have moved on to different teams. It was a real, it was actually a beautiful thing to to see how many people that we'd actually had in our team that were connected to him, you know, that had moved on to other teams, you know, and continued, I guess, spirit of racing for a bigger purpose, which Gino was something that he completely and utterly embraced. You know, he's, he absolutely, that what differentiated him from so many, you know, his, his care of the world that we live in and his, you know, his, the, the impact that he wanted to, to, to impart, I guess using the sport and the passion of, of the bike which was which was super cool it really resonated deeply with him so yeah to, to you know to be there and to be a part of that and to see the people and the inside the team and and outside um was was truly special actually so yeah it was it was nice to to be there I guess and I mean Gino and I had a long conversation on Wednesday morning um you know the day before the accident at the start of the race um he came past he's you know, it's just uh, yeah, it's such a, yeah, it's just such a special person with a special passion for life, I guess. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, just incredibly sad.
2: When did you first meet him? You know, when did he first come on your radar?
3: When he was in, you know, 2018, he was racing for a team and did well at the world championships. You know, he was, he rode with Mark Hershey and those guys. I mean, it was, it was an incredible amount of Swiss talent at that time. And then, and um, for some reason, Gino wasn't, you know, wasn't a top pick for some, some bigger teams and world tour teams. And and of course, then we picked him up and, and signed a two years, uh, you know, near pro contract with him at the time. And, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was amazing to have him in our team. You know, we always had Swiss riders in our team in the past. And um, as you know, our team was always looking for riders from all around the world. To, you know, to get involved and come on board and uh, and yeah he was an amazing individual to have as, as, as a part of the team so the and yeah 2018 was the time when you know he stepped up into the World Tour
2: What were your first impressions of him?
3: No I mean he's a very quiet guy you know very thoughtful you know he doesn't you know doesn't say things just for the sake of saying things there's always a process behind it and um, but super fun you know, always looking for the the humor and everything. You know, and I think that was you know he never took life too seriously and saw um, saw so, so always the good in things and in people. And it was it was a real pleasure. And you know, it was a real pleasure to have him in in the team. And he had a lot of value. But he was kind of quiet, did his thing, um, opened his eyes. You know, used the senior riders' experience um, mm-hmm. to learn from. Yeah, you know, super super engaging individual
2: and I mean as an athlete did you did you think he was a special rider as well did you think he is destined to go on
3: definitely especially in the second year with us um you know when he went top 20 in the in the Vuelta you know he rode his first grand tour with us and then we know you know Gino went on to you know the year he left our team he had an amazing 2021. I mean, he shot the lights out actually, and uh, really came onto the scene in a big way. So he was building each year, which was which was really cool. And and uh, without pressure, you know, I think that was something that you know that he thrived in. If you didn't if you didn't put pressure on him and make him the go to person, and just let him be a little bit more free to to race the way he wants to race and to feel the way he feels, then that's where you can get the, that's where we feel, you know, you can get the best or could get the best out of it.
2: I mean, you talked about, you know, his, his, his kind of life off the bike, but he, he did have a conscience and a care for the, the wider world, didn't he? I mean, he, um, he, you know, he didn't make a big song and dance about it, but his um, crowd funder for, uh, or sorry, his donations um, for environmental charities. I mean, that struck a chord with people too, didn't it?
3: absolutely i mean i think it was fun it was cool you know every person he passed or beats in the Welter, and he donated money and it was like it might seem insignificant in per individual but collectively it makes a difference and i think that's you know that that was super cool and and i mean he got that i think through a little bit from when he was in south africa and he saw the kids on bikes and the communities that we that we took him through he loved the bicycles change lives campaign he loved the fact that the kids earned the bikes through growing trees, cleaning up trash, going to school, you know, improving their grades. So I think, you know, that's where it kind of dawned from. You know, I know when he won the Giro d'Italia stage, he spoke about how the impact of of the bicycle has on the broader world uh, in his interview, um, which was beautiful. It just shows that a simple thing like what we did and what we do and, and his experience of that as a young rider, and the heart opened his eyes, you know, and, and struck a chord with him and spoke to his values. And it lived with him beyond that, that he wanted to do something to make a difference. As a young rider, that was still growing, you know, in terms of the sport and his brand and his values, you know, on the bike. That was pretty amazing. It shows that he had self-belief, confidence, and just a, a care for a better world.
2: Yeah, I mean, I thought it couldn't have been a coincidence that the the cause that he supported was an African reforesting campaign.
3: Yeah, I mean, I when I saw that, I just, I mean, I, you know, that just it just made me even more appreciate him as a human being, and um, and the, and the the fact that we, you know, loved having him in our team, and how we would, you know, we would love love to have had him back in our team. And you know that's that's the conversations that we were having just because we we spent a good two years together and we and um, we felt that we could you know continue in that way with him um, into the future uh, which would have been which would have been amazing. But as a human being, yeah, he's he adds value in every situation on the bike, off the bike, and with teammates, with people around the sport, and uh, yeah, the human level was was large, which was which makes it even harder actually now.
2: I had a big loss for, uh, obviously, for his his friends, his family, those he those he loved, been like him. Um, but also a reminder for the sport. It better we needed one really that the risk that these guys take in. Uh, you know, I mean, my first thought was Butlins is so renowned for the quality and of the road surfaces, and it, it, it's um, just a reminder that, that something like this is uh, never too far away from. Um, as a as a, as a real concern to so, uh, the riding. I mean, what's been the impact with with your group in in the week or so since this?
3: I mean, it's been it's affected every rider, even if they knew Gino or not. It affected the family of cycling, which is a very as you know, it's an incredible family. It's incredibly tight knit. It's everyone cares about each other, although sometimes not. <laughs> you know, I think the pressure to perform and. You know, you forget common sense. I was speaking to some senior riders who have families and kids, you know, you've got a younger generation now that comes through that doesn't have that and doesn't feel, they feel a little bit, you know, more, you know, free, I think, and um, and don't look at the consequences of stuff. But, you know, common sense has to prevail. Like you can't push people off a wheel going down a hill 80, 90K an hour. And then, of course, you know, from a, from an event organizer point of view, you know do you have to finish at the bottom of a hill you know when you've just ridden up a massive mountain pass I mean of course the villages and the towns pay money but you can create experiences in the village you know post the event post the stage with the riders and the fans you know without having to have a you know a race at 100 110 hour down a hill 90 degree bends and then a finish you know I mean it's It happens in so many races. So I think those are the conversations that need to be had now to say, you know, is it worth it? And do we need that? So, but I mean, the riders were, they know the risks of it. I mean, of course, anything on wheels, like if you look at MotoGP, Formula One, you know, that you can put all the measures in place as possible. There's always, there's always an opportunity that something could go wrong and you could. And I think in cycling with the weather conditions, you know, winds channeling through mountains light bikes, deep section wheels light riders 200 ks concentration levels limited pressure to contracts to perform etc i mean i think if you look at all of that it it all has a, an impact on you know on on a, on an individual and and what happens and you know and that's hectic and um and i think everybody's now looking at that very very i mean it's very sad that sometimes something so Hectic has to, you know, to has, to, you know, is is the catalyst that opens the can, and I think which is which is which sucks, but th- let's hope that um that because of, that through this we 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 learn more and and people are more more responsible and and use more common sense because I think that's that's absolutely what needs to prevail here for the safety of everyone moving forward.
1: Well, Daniel. I didn't have many interactions with Gino Maida at all. I wasn't at the 2021 Giro d'Italia uh, because it was kind of COVID-affected still, wasn't it? But you were there with uh late colleague and friend, Richard Moore. And I suppose, like all of our listeners, I got to know a bit about Gino Maida because he uh, kept an audio diary for us, as you said. And uh, that gave us an insight into... What, a, what sort of person he was, and a very likable person whose uh, interest in the world extended beyond the peloton, I think. But what was uh, Gino Mader to you? It was a, a, I'm assuming a, a very pleasant presence in the mix zone at the races.
0: Yeah, he was, line I mean, there are two things, I suppose you know your personal interactions with riders and also you know often you find yourself thinking a bit more like a fan or imagining how you'd feel about certain riders if you were a fan and i suppose it won't have escaped anyone who listens to the cycling podcast and noticed that i uh, over the years i've sort of been naturally predisposed to climbers riders who hail from the mountains hail from you know the sort of heartlands of professional cycling the Italy Spain Switzerland and, and Gino Maida was that um, he was certainly a climber he was a, a guy who had grown up in the mountains we're going to hear in a few minutes about the sort of symbiosis that he felt with the mountains with that environment and also how it fed into um, his concern for the environment but so I you know I would have been a fan of Gino Maida anyway he was elegant on the bike of a, a, a sort of classic climber's build tall gangly elegant on the bike certainly when he was um, riding at his at his best and you know he was a rider who had grown up in this sort of Pogacar generation, but really come to the fore in 2020 at the Vuelta Hispania, late in the Vuelta Hispania that year um, on the stage that was won by David Gordou when the sort of Vuelta was was being contested, but the overall title was being contested by Primoz Roglic or Richard Carapaz. It didn't escape my notice that Gino Mader, uh, well, he finished second on that final mountain stage, and he was getting stronger and stronger in the race. And then the following year, well, it was his big breakthrough at the Giro d'Italia when he did keep the audio diary for us and at the Vuelta a España as well that year when he rode sensationally and he was fifth overall and he he was a guy who immediately when you first met him and interviewed him who stood out as being different from average your average professional cyclist um had this fantastic voice that i mentioned a few times in well on twitter last week when um, i'm paying my very small tribute to him this um, sort of deep booming kind of baritone voice and he was incredibly open as well and candid and his candid his candor got him in trouble i think a few times he talked about his mixed feelings about riding for um a a team essentially sponsored by a golf state and, and how that married or didn't marry with his concern for, as I said, the environment. I mean, I spoke to a colleague, a Swiss colleague of ours um, this morning, who knew him better than me, um, Emil Bischofberger of the Tagus uh, Anzeiger, the Zurich newspaper, who interviewed Gino often at home and, and he just remarked on how well, it was a bit of a throwback to a different age liner when we started working on professional cycling it was very common to go to riders homes and to see sort of inside the keyhole and Emil said that that was how it remained with Gino Emil himself lives in Zurich and he would often go round to Gino's house and they would talk about a lot besides cycling. In fact, the last time that Emil visited Gino at home was a few weeks ago and they spent a lot of, a lot of time talking about well, whether it was a good idea for Gino to, to sell his car and to buy a sort of cargo bike with which he could travel to the other side of Zurich for um, d- dog training. He'd recently acquired uh, a rescue, a Spanish rescue dog that he'd called Peo because it'd been found in Bilbao and of course Gino's... Um, basque teammate um, who's was who very good friends with as well it's called payo bilbao and um yeah and this was sort of typical of the wide ranging conversations that one could could have with this rider and you know bowler counts are a quiet rider as doug Ryder said there um someone who you know i've been listening and paying attention to some of the testimony, some of the tributes from other riders over the past week and they've they've a lot of them said I didn't necessarily know him that well. He was a guy who kind of kept himself to himself in the Peloton. But there was an air about him, an aura which made him very likable, even if you didn't necessarily know him that well. Um you know, I know He was very, very well liked in his team. A few, well, this season there was a race that I was at, a stage race that I was at where I was told by someone in the team that um, another Bahrain rider was um, not in a particularly good mood or he seemed to be not enjoying himself, particularly on this race. And I I sort of asked why and was told that, well, it was because Gino wasn't there because um, this particular rider and Gino made a were were very close and had a deep bond and um, it had affected this rider that Gino wasn't there. So, you know, a rider that, when I heard the news last week, obviously you don't want this to happen to anyone and we have contact with a lot of these guys, but, you know, the first thought that came into my head and has kept coming back into my head over the last week, Lionel, it's not him, please not him, um, because he was someone that really added a great deal to the the constellation that is professional song a really bright light that was gonna that was gonna radiate a lot more um, a lot more things for us to talk about things for us to enjoy um, things for the sport to grapple with i think you know by by virtue of how willing he was to talk about other issues besides professional cycling and the impact of professional cycling on the world um over the coming years and you know he was was about to ride his first tour de france i think he was he was going to be selected for bahrain and you know he was a guy who at his best belonged at the very pinnacle of the sport as well and we saw that in 2020 won at that Giro d'Italia. And we're talking about the 2021 Giro d'Italia and talking about pinnacles. I thought we should also hear a bit from Gino Maida just to end this segment and our short tribute to him today. And We're going to hear a bit from his audio diary in that 2021 Giro d'Italia. He'd won the first mountain stage, the first big mountain stage of the race. And he was in the blue jersey of the king of the mountains. And this was his prompt to talk to us a bit about his relationship with the mountains. And then last year at the Vuelta a España, well, we knew about his initiative He was donating money for every rider who finished behind him on general classification um, at the Vuelta. He'd also done that in previous races. Uh, And he was donating the money to a good cause, again, uh, ecological um, cause. And, um, yeah, we're going to hear him talking about, well, this was the, the day after we'd done a long transfer across Spain and it had brought into focus... The, well, the 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 deleterious environmental impact of grand tours in some respects and you're going to hear him talk to us about how this was a subject that was playing on his mind more and more
4: obviously it's a, it's still a long long way to go and a lot of mountains to come which brings me well to the mountains to to the beauty of it i mean Yeah, mountains, it's just, it's something so nice, it's something so peaceful, but still it's such a harsh world and it's incredible how, (laughs) yeah, how everything is so close when you are in the mountains and spending a lot of time there and I'd, I'd wish to be able to spend more time in the mountains and to just enjoy pure nature that's that's basically all all it is about and when you when you conquer uh a summit and when when you stand on top of a mountain well <laughs> i'm not talking about climbing up a mountain but by bike and when you walk up there it's just such a nice feeling and you feel like the king of the world so and it's it's just so pure that's uh that's what i love about them. and being swiss having the alps having yeah one of the most beautiful countries due to the mountains it's just a privilege and obviously obviously you feel connected to them uh even though i live in Zurich now <laughs> in the flatland and not having a lot of mountains around me and not having a lot of a lot of this freedom that they provide you it's just a different world it's so much more peaceful and i i honestly just love it and to have the chance to now fight for the blue jersey for the for the best climber is a, is a privilege and it makes me feel it makes me feel really really motivated for the next um, 11 stages and gives you a massive goal in mind and a huge, yeah, a huge chance.
5: As long as we kind of can rise awareness and like show maybe there's different alternatives, better alternatives, we can just use these days, uh, yeah, to rise awareness and uh, maybe to everybody do a small little thing to help. Uh, well, to help op- offset uh, the CO2 we, well, we're gonna emit. But uh, well, it's not really, it's not really perfect. In a perfect world, uh, that wouldn't be necessary. But uh, here we are, 900k in a in a car is also not pleasant. And, I mean, uh, I obviously I like that they take care of the ra- like riders and they try to make it as comfortable as possible for them, but. Uh, we soon have to start to think about the world because uh, I think our planet is dying at an alarming rate, and uh, some, like some, skipping points in uh, in the warming, they they can't be well turned back. That's why we call them skipping points. Um, so yeah, I just feel like we have to start soon, and we have to start really, really, um, like strong you find yourself thinking about it more and more when you see how a
0: bike race works? And, you know, particularly on Grand Tours, we're sort of confronted with it every
5: day. Again, you know, we're travelling a lot in the car as well. I mean, the truss is massive. And uh, we are now in a really, like, rainy region of Spain, so it doesn't show as much. But you see pictures of yesterday, tour of uh, Germany, and it looks like southern Spain. And uh, well, it makes you it makes you think. And um, well, as I said, we we better gonna start soon. Obviously, my money it won't make like the massive impact. But I just try to well put my money where my mouth is, and uh, get people to speak about and think about it.
6: That's Seb the the podcast
1: team car at the back of the P.K. the voice of Radio Tour to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew Two, the most advanced GPS cycling computer available today. The mapping is second to none. The navigation means you never go off course and it's the climber feature which I think really sets it apart because it's like having a little road book on your handlebars telling you what awaits you up the road and when you're struggling on a climb sometimes that's just the impetus you need to push on to the top knowing it's only two or three or four hundred meters away or that the gradient flattens out a little bit beyond where the eye can see now the Karoo 2 is used by the likes of Chris Froome, Justin Williams, Tiffany Cromwell, Alex Howes and triathletes Flora Duffy and Hayden Wilde although I'm not too sure how the climber feature works in the water it probably doesn't but on the bike it's a fantastic companion and I've really enjoyed using it over the last year or so and right now all of our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of every Hammerhead Karoo 2 go to hammerhead.io and use the promo code cycle at checkout basically add the heart rate monitor and the karu 2 to your shopping cart and use the promo code cycle at hammerhead.io you won't regret it i'm really looking forward to getting back from the tour and getting out on the road maybe some kind of end of season trip with simon gill who knows we'll have plenty of time at the tour to think about our options
0: Well, Lionel, the tragic news of Gino Maida's death very much overshadowing everything in professional cycling this week. Hence, I think, as we stated in our introduction, there'll be no news roundup this week. But we are going to play, you're going to hear now, um, further reflections from us on a subject that's been, or had been, the talk of professional cycling. That is... Uh, Tour de France unchained the new docu series released on Netflix about the 2022 Tour de France last week we heard from the executive producer James Gay Reese of box to box films about the making of that series and well this week you're going to hear our reflections meditations on whether we enjoyed it and what we did like what we didn't like and we thought... To do that, we would invite uh, a good friend of the podcast to join us. He himself is an acclaimed director of films about cycling. He's a gentleman named Finley Pretzel. I think he's featured on the podcast before. Um, a very good friend of the late Richard Moore. And Finley was the director of Standing Start. That was his first film about the Scottish track rider Craig McLean. And he went on to direct Time Trial, a story about the last year in professional cycling of another scottish rider david miller he also won a bafta for mar bar about 73 year old weightlifter bill McFadden. and well as you will expect as you would expect finley as a director and someone who works in film had some interesting thoughts on tour de france unchained so here we are lionel this was us speaking last week with finley pretzel about tour de france unchained Billy Pretzel. (laughs) (laughs) claim for you later. Long time friend of the podcast. Good to
6: have you on the podcast. You've been on before, of course, haven't you? Yeah. Not like me. No. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, with Richard, I think. And I had this funny experience when I was speaking to Lionel once. that uh, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. It's actually it's much easier speaking to Lionel than it was ever speaking to Richard. Richard would just be... His big face looking back at me would just make me laugh and feel really, really uncomfortable, <laughs> and like he was looking right through me, going, "Don't believe you." It's, like, <laughs> and it's well, like yeah. you know, we could see through me, you know.
0: Of course, we'll believe everything you say today because your
6: your credentials are impeccable,
0: Finley. Uh I exactly. said, uh, acclaimed filmmaker, uh, producer, producer and director. Well, you know, uh, uh, he's got you down as producer of Time Trial. Um, director, uh, standing star, standing star about Craig McLean. Uh, yeah, track cycling. I remember the film, I watched the film and I loved the film, but and I know was a sprinter. And that's yeah, about uh, all I can remember about Craig, um, Craig McLean is an, uh, an outstanding, awesome, an acclaimed track
6: cyclist, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Chris Holly was in it too. Chris I mean, Holley it was, was like too. maybe the third, uh, 2006. Many years ago.
0: Many years Quite. ago. And then almost a decade later Time Trial the focus of which was David Miller and sort of the twilight of
6: David Miller's career wasn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a film I always wanted to make about cycling. Time Trial. And st- Stan and start was like scrape, like kind of getting towards it. I was never interested really in track cycling. And then but and road cycling was the thing and that so Time Trial was that film. I had to exercise this thing out of my system, and that's Time Trial.
0: Completely <laughs> exercise bringing your system, never to be revisited. Maybe, or maybe not. Um, this brings us, Finley, to, well, this the cycling film, maybe the most talked about cycling film, or certainly docu-series of all time, to date. Uh, we've been talking about We talked about it last week in the podcast. Everyone in cycling has been talking about it. Imagining that this is going to somehow project cycling into the stratosphere. Cycling is going to be go supersonic. It's be- going to become more popular than football as a result of this series. Um, that certainly appears to have been some people's expectations or along those lines. We're going to start, chaps, by going around the table, proverbial table, and just interrogating what were our expectations. And Finley,
6: let's start with you. What did you think we were going to get from this? I what I <clears throat> I wanted something absolutely like uncovered, un like literally <laughs> unchained. To, uh, the for one of a better uh, title. I, I wanted to see everything. I wanted to see all of the intimate details that we were, you know. That, that, that I wanted to see in my own film they, them, them in their beds at night the, the real details of stories interconnecting different riders different team managers I wanted to hear radio back and forward between the riders and team cars I I suppose I wanted this kind of immersion in this sport this 8, I don't get as much as 8 hours but 8 episodes certainly of pure immersion in this world and and to try and honor those stories that you don't see unless you dig you know as a viewer watching the Tour de France you wouldn't see these stories because the the access was phenomenal you know they it, it was the ASO the Tour de France organizers you know approached this production company because of their
0: yeah, yeah I, was, I mean I was about to say your expectations and while there maybe you've spoken more about your desires for it um, rather yeah. than what you expected we were going to get but they are informed or they were informed by obviously your experience in the film industry and knowing a bit about the heft
6: behind this project absolutely that's exactly it and, uh, because constantly the whole time we were making the film from start to finish whether we were on a recce two of us to a full crew of 15, 20 of us at a race, you know, it was like the access is the thing. You're wrestling with access constantly, you know, with David, uh, the main character of my film, but his team constantly and the race. And I remember one moment in our, our film where we wanted to film the, a team time trial. I don't know if it was in the Giro or the Toronto Adriatico, the team time trial, it's like on separate roads. Straight road, like on kind of dual carriageway, in, and we could get our motorbike beautifully alongside it, and we'd we'd kind of pre-arrange this, and then somehow that changed when we were getting ready to film it, and nobody knew who to ask to see can we do this, and you know, it, and it was like that would have been beautiful. It would have been even longer. The time trial scene in my film would have been even longer. No, but to film that in a very controlled manner where. Is amazing, and I think that's the that's the thing with the this series. It's like the access is like insane.
0: It, and plus Tour de France, not the Giro, you were mainly trying to obtain access at RCS's races, weren't you? In particular, yeah, Giro. Exactly.
6: This, yeah, 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 This is the biggest race, this is the big break. Yeah, but we wrote it off because it was too complicated. Because the maximum amount of r- race footage that we could get as an independent company, and this is across the board was 20 minutes of race footage. And my film is all about the race. It's all about being in the race and being immersed in the experiences of the race. So I think that, that, so then suddenly you've got, no, no, you can do as many errors as you want in the tour and you have access to this team, the big team, all the team leaders. It's like, it's it's like a feast, you know, For, for a filmmaker, it's an absolute feast. But all the time I was thinking, I don't know how they're going to do it. It's extremely complicated to get across these stories, these, the motivations, the uh, story arcs of riders, the, and I think it's an incredibly difficult thing. Even with this huge amount of access, they've suddenly got this bigger problem, which is like, how do we tell this story and how do we figure this out? And to whom as well. That's another question I think, whether it's to us whether it's to someone who's never seen the Tour de France before which I think is a big thing it's a big question and I because I think they because I've spoken to my kind of was almost going to work on it and they and it, they wanted it to come from a completely outsider's point of view and uh, to, to be as a, a kind of this is something exciting that anyone can watch not just cycling fanatics you know
0: so Anu, what about you?
1: I think uh, having watched it all, not quite binged it, I've watched it almost like a stage race, really, sort of an episode a day in the end was was how I approached it. I think actually it kind of was what I expected it to be, a kind of uh, a, a broad brushstroke, um, exciting, um, fast-paced compelling in the sense that you do want to go on. You do want to kind of get through it and watch the next one and watch the next one. I I think it was it was a series made for Netflix viewers rather than uh, for cycling aficionados who already know and understand and watch the Tour de France. And I think in many ways it was successful in making the tour look exciting, dangerous, edge of the seat, thrilling, tactical. Intriguing to a degree, but perhaps not intriguing to the degree that I was kind of craving. What I was surprised by and where it perhaps didn't meet my expectation was that it didn't really get under the skin of how uh, the various conflicts in the tour work there was no real sense of you know man against man you know there was fleeting moments I think one of the most powerful kind of minutes or snippets in the film is uh, in the episode where uh, they're portraying a battle for the third place on the podium between Geraint Thomas and David Godu and it cuts directly from the INEOS team car. Steve Cummings is worried because Thomas is getting dropped and he says something like don't cock it up G and then it cuts directly to Mark Maddio in the Group Armour car saying super yes and I just thought that actually a race of all these people you know trying to there were lots of there were lots of quotes you know they're trying to kill each other they're trying to do this they're trying to do that but there was little in the way of showing that in in uh, in the footage it, it it gave the impression of the, the tour being a sort of a completely unstructured, harem scareum. You know, crashes here, cobbles there, mountains here, descents there. It played with our timeline, and, and and hang on. And I thought that I thought that that made it exciting, but but it wasn't. I thought we were we were going to see the rollout of this
0: of this review episode, I thought we were gonna see kilometer zero and you've just jumped straight out to the photo finish. You've told us exactly what you thought about it. You've you've (laughs) given us the your eighty six percent on rotten tomatoes. I thought we'd you know we'd ease in slowly ahead of you tell us what you maybe
1: you tell the story Daniel by you get to you get to the point you get the headline first and then the then the intro, introductory paragraph and then you you start you know you go and I think that Netflix has maybe uh, helped me kind of come to come to that conclusion really because you know when you when, you, when I watched the first episode, it did go straight in on a story or on a couple of stories, and it, it tried to pin each episode on on a story. And so, in that sense, I think it was um, it was kind of what I expected it to be. I expected it to be something where there would be satisfying enough for the experts, but it would really be much more welcoming for the layperson who perhaps has watched the Tour de France and thinks, "Oh yeah, there's lots of things I don't really understand about it." I think that was the approach. I'm not terribly sure it sort of answered all of those questions that people would have had, but um, well, there we are. That's my two minute, as you say, Rotten Tomatoes review. You can say goodbye to Lionel now. We've um, had <laughs> plenty, plenty more to say, Daniel. Plenty more to say. Okay. So,
0: all I would say about my experience, I'm not sure You know, I sat and really reflected. On exactly what I had to get from him, but you think about the current sort of palette of, or the, the current, I suppose, well, the, the filmography as it exists, of which you are a part, Finley. The films that have been made about cycling. So you go back to you know the seventies, which was a, a pretty fertile times, thanks to people like Jürgen Leff. Um, films like Sunday in Hell, or films like Stars and Wards carried. And then you think about more recent additions to the genre, which you know they came to mind as I was watching this. Sometimes thinking, well, it would have been nice to have a bit more of what we saw in, for example, the France Television film a couple of years ago about thibaut Pinot, avic Thibault, which was very, very intimate. And most people, even if they didn't don't have access to France Television, they saw the scene of Mark Mario sitting on the side of his bed, sort of coaching and pep talking him, and. Pino collapsing in tears. So we've we got that sort of body of work that you thought might have informed this production, and also just the resources that you know the field, the the team. Sorry, in their social media output that they draw on now. So you know we're very very familiar with footage from inside team buses now, in car GoPro footage. We're very very familiar with probably too familiar, and that's maybe a slight dog bear I had with this film. But then you also think about the wider kind of panorama of sports documentaries, non-fiction filmmaking at the moment, and and also things like Drive to Survive, which is you know it's the same production company, and obviously there is a template which has been successful. It's perceived as being successful, and it's a template that's been created by Box to Box Films, I suppose, yep. and that the people behind behind uh, Unchained, and well, I suppose you. You, you throw all those ingredients you can't throw all those ingredients that i just mentioned into a single pot and get a coherent narrative so i was just curious to see which of you know which kind of color in that palette that they were going to draw on most most heavily without really knowing without really having the answers to some of those questions that we've just raised ourselves you know who were they targeting specifically um Did they want to give a a different vision of something we're already familiar with? Or uh, a, 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 a vision of something that we're almost too familiar with? And this is probably my problem with evaluating the film. You know, I did find myself trying to empathize with, trying to imagine, trying to put myself in the armchair of someone who doesn't know anything about the Tour de France. And that's just really difficult to do um, because these images are so familiar. And, you know, we'll maybe get into the weeds a little bit later of, of the kind of colour palette of the Tour de France. The What we see is almost the cliched imagery of the Tour de France and which has absolutely no kind of visceral impact on us anymore. But someone seeing it all for the first time may just be absolutely shockingly beautiful and exciting and exhilarating um i think yep so absolutely so, so i don't know what that says about my expectations final um i'm still trying to
1: there were a lot more a lot more considered than, a lot more considered than than my one. i i suppose i tried to go into it with a an open mind really um and So it's, diff- it's actually a quite a difficult question because, as you say, it is impossible to unteach your mind what you already know about the Tour de France, and it's especially difficult for us. I'm not saying we're you know, intimately inside the race because we're not. You know, we've had I've had snippets on the team bus, I've been in a team car, I've been around a team hotel, but I suppose I was expecting there to be a little bit more uh, light and shade it was it was full-on relentless excitement really through the eight episodes everything was about the race and about the action and about the and and while there were little moments you know on the massage table or the uh, you know the team meetings and, and those moments really stood out for their power i think in the end the, the tom pidcock moment with steve cummings for example after uh, before and after the uh, stage win on alp you know, those moments where it did calm down and just give a little bit of a breath and a, and a pause to sort of soak up what we'd watched uh, lent, uh, you know, some a bit more power to the just the relentless drama because otherwise I did feel it was a little bit like sort of something made for the computer game generation of which I am just about a part in which it's got to be thrills, thrills, thrills all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. But you know, we we think back to we think back to Jorgen Leth films, and I, all the way through, I was thinking about the um, the the television sitcom. Not really a sitcom. It's a, a sort of drama documentary. Uh, sorry, comedy drama with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, The Trip, which is a you know a road trip of a very different sort to the Tour de France. And in that, they, they're they basically going on a tour of restaurants, either in the Great Britain or in Italy in, in later series. And there are just some cutaway moments where they're checking into the hotel. There's moments of quiet and calm and just sort of ambient noise. There's chefs working in the kitchen. And I think the Tour de France is absolutely rife for that because the Tour de France day starts at dawn and finishes after nightfall And there's more to the Tour de France than just the bit between Kilometre Zero and the finish line. You know, moments of mechanics working on bikes, you know, suitcases being put in the lobby, um, breakfast being prepared and put on the table, coffee machines whirring, sports director leafing through road book. I'm really hesitant to kind of sort of say this as a criticism of the film because basically the filmmakers could say, well, that wasn't what we were setting out to make. But as a viewer... I just didn't have a moment where I could sort of absorb the technicolor and the pace and the frenetic nature of the racing and, and just sort of oh take a beat and then move on to the next story. And I think as a consequence in in the storytelling. Um, that made it a little bit harder to identify with the the stories. You know, Fabio jacobson has got an incredibly compelling story of the the comeback. Um, It didn't really have quite enough space to breathe. But I guess that's the limitations of the format, the length of the episodes, and the fact that, let's face it, Netflix and all streaming, the business model is based on making sure that people, you know, don't press stop when the countdown to the next episode is on you know they they want you to keep watching and so there's never a moment to sort of just go ah that was good
0: yeah I mean just to illustrate that before we go back to you Finley um the Jakobsen story is introduced really at minute three in episode one and I was keeping my eye on the clock and within five minutes so you get to minute eight and Jakobsen's been introduced the story of his crash in Poland's been introduced to that quick step and what they're about has been introduced patrick LeFebvre has been introduced julian alaphilippe's been introduced and also a large part of the narrative of the weather selection dilemma for that team and that's all in five minutes and that is pretty typical of the pacing of of the episodes
4: the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science
0: i mean finley i'm kind of curious from a filmmaker's point of view how daunting would you have found this i mean the brief the brief was to involve i don't know who said and who dictated that this many teams were involved um but the brief was to cover a lot of teams and to cover a lot of narratives cover a lot of personalities i mean how daunting is that and
6: how successfully did they go about it? Yeah. So, eight teams it was. <clears throat> that they had to, uh, they had the kind of access to follow.
0: It's, Although, they not all they really figured out. No, because, of for example, it, I don't know if people have noticed, but I think people will have, Borahansgrohe are,
6: yeah, barely in it, if I know. No. Yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting. No, how daunting? It's massively daunting. You know, I have come from an absolutely opposite end mm-hmm. of the scale with my film you know it's about one person doing our uh, race we don't talk about that necessarily exactly the specifics of that race you know so we have you know creative freedom to play around with time what races he's in doesn't really you know it's not, it's not like stamped on the screen you know I wanted to capture the experience of racing on the bike. You know, that that's it. The sounds, the smells, the the speed, the kind of uh, unrelenting nature of it. But, (laughs) and, you know, I've wanted those, one of my favorite things about watching cycling on television, it always has been on a sunny summer afternoon is watching the Tour de France. And it just, it's meditative. The only... Like, yeah, exactly. And it's like, oh, and it's really very peaceful. And I've spoken to many people who aren't into cycling. They, that's an element they like. And so I wanted to capture some of that for my film, of course. So this is like the absolute opposite. It's, it's feeding you constantly. It's telling you, this is what you're watching. Then you're going to go here. Then we're going back here. And then we're going over here. And it's very, very... I, but I cannot imagine. And I remember speaking to the the makers of it before they made it. Uh, she didn't, she wasn't a cycling fan uh, or she didn't know anything about cycling. She just started researching a year before. And it's like, and she was just like, wow, look at this. And it was the year Cavendish was having his kind of, you know, comeback year at the Tour and it was like, wow, she was like blown away by this, and she, you know she was gutted, she could, she missed that but it's like, trying to weave in all of these stories and all of these personalities and all of these emotions it's it's. I don't know, I don't know how you can do it, you know, because I, you know, in the first episode I think it's Eve Lampart wins the yellow jersey at the, at the prologue is it and he's in tears and it's like Boom, off, off to the next thing. And you're like, oh Christ, I wanna I wanna see that. I wanna experience that because it's like that's a moment. That's a that's a that's a a moment of emotion and it just kind of skips on. And but they have no time. They can't linger on these characters, you know. They, they they just can't. It's not it's not in the 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 makeup of making this series, you know.
1: But that's probably why the moment with Thibaut Pino feeding his baby goat from a bottle—it sticks. That really lodges in my mind as a as a moment. The just the time when we had a, a moment to absorb what we've just seen, and and there's some punctuation, and then we learn just in his in his body language the way he interacts with his with his partner on this uh, on this farm. Um, you know, he, I think he. he he chastises a little goat for standing in the in the in the food you know that oh, don't put your feet in there that's where your food goes and i was just i learned more about Pino in that kind of little sentence than you do in hearing him you know sat down in a you know a, a really a, a dark but very well professionally lit room when when they all have to kind of do the talking head bits and i also think that the the momentum of the tour uh is is one thing Asking the riders to then reflect upon it, you know, weeks or possibly months later when it's all gone for them. You know, the, these guys are, these, the, yeah, they are on the relentless uh, uh, conveyor belt of of the next race, the next training camp, whatever. And I, I just got a feeling, you know, that the interviews must, the big challenge must have been getting people to go and put themselves back in the place that they were in. Several weeks ago, several months ago, and and revisit the emotions. Now, I think that probably works better in Drive to Survive because the, there's fewer protagonists. The storylines are um, they are bigger and bolder. Cycling storylines are always about nuance and kind of misunderstanding and intent, and you know, uh, you know it, whether it comes down to Wout van Aert waiting for finger go up when he has his puncture, and the, you know the. Uh, did he do the right thing? Didn't he do the right thing? There was. It's very hard to tell those stories after all of the emotion has, has, has drained away from the people involved, and uh, that must have been a huge challenge for the filmmakers. I, I I would have thought, because I think that the French
6: elements were my favourite. I think of the of the series mm-hmm. because of this moment of respite. You did feel, especially Penal. And his goats. When when and he's on the farm and it's like, oh wow, what a blissful life. What a what what am what a person. You wanna mm. you know, you wanna hang out with him and cuddle him. But it's it's also like what we found when we were making my film I wanted it to be constantly in the race, constantly moving, constantly like the well, noise of the race, constantly but what happens with that is it becomes like white noise. It becomes like you're just oh okay it, it, it does, it's not special, so when you, as soon as you leave that race and go to the goat farm, you're like you've you've really had a break, and you're like oh but I want to get back to the race, I want to go back to the race, and that desire of pushing in yeah. in a film I think is really really it's really necessary,
0: yeah, I mean there's a moment. I think it's episode one where they they're obviously talking about Walt Van Art trying to introduce him and introduce the various sort of layers to this narrative of Jumbo Vismas tour, and again it comes down to access. And as a kind of journalist and someone in the sort of storytelling game, you find yourself immediately almost envying or the access and also the you know the money that it it costs to go and visit. I mean, there are lots of there are lots of house visits. They go to Geraint Thomas. They go and see Wout van Aert. We don't see very much from those house vi- visits on a, a lot of occasions. But we see Wout van Aert. And unfortunately, he's in a Jumbo Visma team sweatshirt. Uh, and he's talking about exactly, well, the, the, the bit of race action we've just seen a couple of seconds ago. And it's, it's not really that respite that you're talking about. It's not really that pull to the push of... This this very absorbing drama that we've just been watching.
6: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think it's it's such a it's such a vital thing, and it just making my film taught me. It just we just understood that all of a sudden we're like, whoa, this is this is becoming an overload of Mm. guys riding bike essentially. You know, I mean, we we can talk about that later as well in terms of like style and imagery and stuff, but. It's such a, it, it's, it's just, it, it's such an incredibly difficult thing. I'm starting to think about that, but for me watching this, you know, th- that, the, the style of it in trying to capture something as sprawling and as moving and as with so many protagonists is an, ex- an unbelievably complicated thing to do, I think, but I think in many ways, I think they have succeeded of getting yeah. snapshots of this team, that team, getting a sense of the different teams and their structures and what their you know what their aims are and what their kind of delicate you know their weaker points are and the, the bigger teams, the smaller teams. So I think they have succeeded actually in terms of like the overall race and how they they have got that across I'm not it feels fuzzy to me but maybe it's because I just know about it. and I, you know and I know how the race works. Finley, you,
0: you've watched Drive to Survive correct? Yeah yeah. How does this compare and where does that succeed where this doesn't or vice versa I mean I've got my own ideas about this and it's part of it is to do with the scale of the project and the, the choices that had to be made faced with a choice of covering with you, you know, two, three director Sportifs for every team plus 176 riders, it's potentially it's over 200 individuals, whereas Drive to Survive is 30. It's two drivers for every team and, and 10 principals. But how, how did, do, where does that succeed where this one doesn't and vice versa, do you think?
6: I think it's a simpler format. It's a simple, the race, the F- F1 racing, Formula One racing is a simpler format, you know, and I also think it's like famously not being, you know, it's not being photographed, it's not being filmed, you know, it's, it's so such a closed thing. There's so much money involved. Mm. It feels like there's so many like things. There's so much, I, I say this. It's the same with cycling. Same with any sport. It's, it's like a hype machine in the background of of stories and money and will they transfer here? It's all micro changes in a way. Of it's barely any new riders, uh, new riders that come mm. in or new drivers. Sorry.
0: Yeah, the, I mean, I always talk. We sort of joke about. I coined this idea: the cheesecake of engagement with professional cycling, which is made up of so many different slices. Like some people are interested in cycling because of because they like as you mentioned the ennui of you know watching the countryside go by and being taken viscerally to or vicariously to other places in the world other people like the equipment other people like the emotional sort of jeopardy other people like and there are so many different dimensions to professional cycling more than a lot of other sports and it's difficult as a storyteller I mean we all have natural inclinations towards one or another I'm never going to write about you know I'm never going to make a write a book about disc breaks for example where some people maybe will very successfully and interestingly but it's difficult to know if you're coming to the sport anew it's very difficult to pass a which ones of these d- dimensions is the most important and b which is the most appealing and which is going to tick the most boxes with the audience that you've been told to target
6: absolutely i i don't know how you make those choices because it's mm-hmm. it's it's all about that. It's, it's like yeah, they, they have this huge access that everyone and they can go anywhere. The cameras can go anywhere more or less. They can, you know, mm-hmm. the, it's a big budget, big machine. Oh, we're Netflix, you know. <laughs> when, I remember making a film in a prisons prison once in Scottish prisons, about a hairdressing competition that was held within Scottish prisons. And uh and I remember coming in Initially, with these big burly men, and we would be like, "Oh yeah, oh we just want to make a like a, a cinematic film about uh, hairdressing." We, you know, it's very tender and sweet, and we thought, "Oh, that's a, that'll make a really beautiful film." to kind of scruffy, you know, middle class, um, you know, guys. Let's call it. When we came into the prison, and uh, it was the kind of opposite that we, we expected these prison people to think we were like. Get out of here, man! You know, come on, get your come on, you man up, and we'd be like heckled and bullied. But when we said, "Oh yeah," and it was my the person I made it with, Adrian, he was like, "Oh, yeah, we're with the uh, we're with the BBC." Everyone changed. Oh, it's the BBC here, guys! Ah, oh, the BBC are in, and then they were all like, "Oh, the BBC!" And then we were suddenly like, "Oh, it legitimised them," you know, it legitimised us being there because we're part of the BBC. And I, you know, you have that exact same thing. Time trial where all these scuffy, scruffy blokes and w- women and blokes making this film. And, you know, you've got all the big guns, you know, the the big broadcasters that are like uh, nudging you out of the way of I mean, who are these fools, you know, you know, and it's these amateurs. And it's exactly the same with, as I can imagine them being in this series. Yeah, yeah, we're Netflix coming through. And everyone goes, oh, God, Christ. Yeah, after you, you know. <laughs> can we film this? Of course. <laughs> Instead, we were like, oh, can we, uh, do you think maybe we can get in a little? Nope. I saw, okay. <laughs> <laughs> What's your accreditation? No, nah, I never heard of it. David Miller, not, you know, it's 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 that the whole time, you know. And it's, it's hilarious when you think about that and making these kind of independent films. It's like so different to this big machine you know i know it got to be comical thinking about you know, the prison thing and you know as soon as we said it was funded by the bbc and the british film council but the bbc were like a small part of it and it was like suddenly okay these guys are the big guys you know they know what they're doing
2: <laughs> hey mel Brian here
0: We've ended up talking about a few things that we were not that enamoured with with the film. I mean, let's talk in, finally you mentioned that the French angle from your point of view was one of the stronger aspects of it. Um, what are some of the others that you particularly enjoyed or you, Lionel?
1: I mean, I thought the most compelling storyline and it was well handled was Fabio Jacobson and the way that that kind of popped you know, it started off and paid off at the end, didn't it? Because we had the drama of him racing against the clock. I think he only made the time limit by like 13 seconds at Paraguay, didn't he? And the whole, um, the whole uh, Quickstep Alpha Vinyl uh, staff were on the, the the finish line, and and some of his teammates were on the finish line cheering him over the line. He's right in front of the the, the Voiture Ballet now. Again, as a cycling aficionado someone who knows the sport i kind of totally got that moment you know um but it, it did the there wasn't there wasn't like the sort of the ticking clock down you know the your ballet maybe doesn't mean anything to a somebody who's got a kind of passing interest to the tour de france but i do think think that story was well handled they they explained you know the the context coming into the tour the terrible crash at the tour of poland and then, of course, you know, the, 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 the sort of the moment of glory, um, making it to Paris in the first place and, um, and finishing the job on the Champs-Élysées. And I thought that it, it captured the, the big stories of the tour very well without having access to Tadej Pogacar. I mean, um, James said to us last week, didn't he? You know, Pogacar is one of the film's big figures, despite not uh, being part of it. UAE Team Emirates were not one of the teams that they were following or filming. And I think when you when he said that, a kind of penny dropped for me and thought, wow, that to tell the story of a Tour de France, a duel between two very well-matched riders, and to get that sense of ebb and flow with only one of the protagonists uh, re- included really in the story he, they covered those gaps incredibly well yeah. i didn't really sort of notice that at no, all I and think i think it i think a lot of the storytelling was was done like i say the big broad brush strokes of the storytelling i thought was was really good it's just that as someone who knew those stories i was just craving that kind of next level down mm. but i i've i've, I've got to say it probably you know, it's probably if they're looking at making a second series, you know, maybe they'll be able to delve, you know, and, uh, you know, dig another kind of six feet deeper next time. And then the third series would go another six feet deeper until they really get to the sort of the core of the Tour de France. But I think for a first attempt, they have to um, explain what the race is without falling into that trap of saying over and over again you know the, the Tour de France is 21 individuals well, no, feel- you know they, they they managed to tell the story of what the Tour de France is with, without having to get the viewer to kind of metaphorically refer to a glossary of terms the whole way through
0: yeah I think the absence of Pogacar would have worked better if he was a sort of shadowy taciturn russian villain style then it would have worked brilliantly the fact that he's a you know a very jovial and apparently quite accessible yeah and and you almost universally popular sort of child star probably didn't do them any favors but i think you're right they did they they, that didn't become too much of a handicap the other thing is that you touched there on the pedagogical nature of it and i think they did well with that I don't think they talked down to the audience too much, and they didn't beat us over the head with constant explanations. Um, I, you know, there were there were times where I thought a little bit of information was missing. For example, in the first episode, there's a lot of talk about how EF Education how badly they're doing, but that's not couched in the context of the UCI relegation fight. We just hear that they are doing badly and Jonathan Vaughter sort of says that the team's existence is under threat, but we don't really know why, apart from the sort of vague idea that the sponsors might put out. But I can, you know, we've all been in that, as storytellers, we've all been in that position um, many times where you know that if you introduce a subject, you know it's 3 or 4 minutes later before you've managed to extricate yourself from that rabbit hole and that may well have been the case um there and i do think that they did that pretty well um generally to, to telling just enough about how the whole machine
6: works i think so and i think i think they they, they just you have to make those choices mm. as a filmmakers you know you can not you know and and you and it's it's funny as as Lionel said that it's like this series we we have to remember there will be another there will there is a second series getting made it's like this is just a, it's like a which you almost forget and you because it's so hotly anticipated you want this thing to be everything that you expect or everything that you feel you're missing within the sport. And you wanted to be a celebration. You wanted to be like, "Oh, this is brilliant!" Yeah, anyone who wants to know cycling, go and watch that. It's brilliant, you know.
1: Well, Daniel, what about you? I mean, what were the things that you thought really worked, you know, and the things that perhaps d- didn't work? Kind of the hits and misses of the series.
0: Well, I thought the biggest hit, I suppose, the the most striking one visually, the first time I watched these episodes and watched them multiple times, was how exciting the racing was made to look and how fast and you know some of the images were obviously sped up and that, that sometimes i mean i know it was a very fast tour de france but it looked as though they were going 150 kilometers now not 45 at a time and actually just going back to you know the what we said about it being very difficult to cover or very difficult to linger i did find myself when you were saying that find myself wondering whether the, the, the dramatic nature of this tour de france might not have served the filmmakers very well here in the sense that there was so much going on on the road that maybe those little kind of asides those little tangents the kind of character development in the film possibly suffered um be- because of that because there was so many kind of big narratives um, and and you know you have to there's something like, i've seen people criticize the code of Granon episode the one that focuses on that maybe that's not a coincidence um because the images are so eloquent themselves the race images are so eloquent themselves and the drama really does sort of speak for itself um on on a day like that big misses i suppose and you know only we can say this because we are privy to we we do work in this world and we've got you know lionel and i we've got 20 years plus of interacting with these people sometimes you felt that there was maybe a Gunter Steiner to, to name the the team principal of the Haas team in Formula 1 who's become this big star this big sort of cult hero in Drive to Survive or a, well, Toto Wolff is an obvious one the Mercedes team principal because you know he's the head of the biggest team in Formula 1 but you know there are there were maybe characters who would have been very compelling i felt whose characters really could have been developed who were very funny idiosyncratic who were not really heavily used and as you say finley it's the first this is the first attempt and there might be five series of these and we might find out after four or five series that you know Rolf Aldag is another Gunter Steiner not just because he sounds like him um, and has similar mannerisms but because he's similarly entertaining and you know so, sometimes for example with someone like Patrick Lefebvre if I'd been a filmmaker and I had no real skin in the game and I didn't have to speak to Patrick Lefebvre on a regular basis or ever again then I would have found it easy and compelling and quite attractive to build him into an even bigger pantomime villain than he has actually become in professional cycling because let's face it the material is there you would have all you would have had to do is show a few screenshots of you know his tweets over a few years and have people reading out a few of his columns from het newsblad and that would have been sort of job done and people's eyes would have been kind of bulging immediately and there wasn't there wasn't a lot of that even mark maddio was made to look relatively normal or more more normal than he's looked in some other portrayals and you know i don't know whether that was that's maybe to the detriment of storytelling and to the advantage of nuance and maybe um the the, the, the filmmakers here should be applauded for that but um yeah i think the entertainment maybe suffered slightly because of that
6: yeah yeah so for me that the hits were the French elements. Mark Madiod, he, he's he's so lovable, you know, and passionate, romantic. Not sure i the present moment. <laughs> oh, really? What's happening there? Well, he's not been picked for the Tour de France. Ah, okay. Oops. <laughs> You've got to make tough choices in this game. I think he yeah. says something like that, doesn't he? Yeah. When he makes Godou the uh, the team leader. Uh, yeah, for me, and and it was also what I was striking for me was the 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 danger element of it and the speed. I'm not sure they were sped up, but maybe they were. But I'm like, uh, and and those chaotic moments with crashes where you're, you're like, oh Christ, there's a bike flying past and someone's down on the road and nobody really gives a shit; they're just caring about their own thing, and then they're on. And shall I go? Shall I not? And it started it really there was that like jeopardy that you've you felt within it. You're like, oh God, this is this is hectic. How on earth do they make all that work? There's a couple of guys following them in a car, and you know, this person's up the road, and how do they pull them back down the road to help the next that team leader catch back up to the peloton again? It's like those moments are like kind of I found actually quite compelling. And, and it's something we always wanted to do in our is make the speed, feel the speed and dangerous element of it. And I, and I feel they, they really succeeded in that, actually. And, and I also think, well, I kind of agree with you, Diana, the biggest thing for me is that character development and getting under the skin of these characters really kind of and this is the the thing—it's that 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 luxury of having time, you know. Where you know, I make those films that, that take years to make. They've done that in not even a year—it's kind of insanely fast, you know. And how do you expect to develop those relationships and you know with these riders and going home into their homes with their families? It's it's a huge amount of work to do all that, and it's a kind of subtle thing, but. I think it pays in dividends. But going back to that point, if this is the first introductory series, let's call it, the next series, they're going to, they'll have a bit more lead time. They'll, they'll have an experience and they'll have a familiarity, hopefully, with the filmmakers. And now it'll be like, okay, maybe this going to be a bit like it'll, they'll all develop the story, their stories will develop as the series goes on. And hopefully it kind of carries on into multiple seasons, you know, but it's, uh, yeah. So so I think that, that, that's it for me, you know, the character development, but I think it's the, the time that that takes to do is, is, is huge.
1: Yeah. Mm. Just on the crashes, my, my sort of three positives really are, they stuck to the you know, documentary in the truest sense when it came to the crashes. Bearing in mind, you know, Netflix, the demand for kind of drama and thrills and spills and jeopardy, uh, it could have become a lot more kind of crash laden. I mean there are always crashes in the Tour de France there were some pretty notable ones last year obviously that, that, that you know right from the start the time trial then Yves Lampard being down on the bridge in Denmark while in the yellow jersey uh, the crashes on the cobbles um there was a crash into a traffic island midway through the race but none of that felt gratuitous it was it was just observed it was just like this is part of the Tour de France and that's just it. there was no there was no um there was no attempt to try and uh you know you know really amped that up, which I think is a great credit to the film because it could have uh, gone the other way and 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 turned the the that that element of danger and pain into just sort of you know something to be voyeuristic about um and they they struck that balance really well, I thought you know, between the drama and the danger, the skill and uh you know and the threat of of something terrible happening and I think maybe you know having the Jacobson story right at the start. Uh, possibly even informed their filmmaking and reminded them that, you know, uh, when things go wrong in a a race like the Tour de France, it can go really spectacularly wrong. So I thought that was very good. Um, And then two other little moments that really stood out for me. uh, And again, in a series like that, it is the moments you take away, I think, uh, especially when you watch something in such quick succession. Like I say, I didn't binge it several episodes a day, but I did watch it on successive days. Uh, the technique of when everyone's coming in to have their interviews done in a sort of mocked up studio and they ask the rider to introduce themselves and they're kind of there's this sort of uh, well, it's quite a, a, a well-used technique now, isn't it? They show that setup bit. You know, they show the rider or the person coming in, sitting down, and Roglic just mocking up the setup. You know, this is this is stupid. I think he says, and, and then eventually, sort of introduces himself as Primoz Roglic, cyclist for Jumbo-Visma, in the most deadpan voice going. I thought I don't
0: know, that was. Just, it, I must. It just. I must
1: admit. A, I s- it, it it's probably the Primoz Roglic you know, Daniel, from working yeah. in TV, really.
0: And I I saw... I did see his agent, his manager, Mattia Gallien, in service station last week on the Dauphiné. And I told him about... He had not seen this scene. And the way I described it to him, it had him, well, looking slightly, looking as though he... Um, he had a slight fever. He was getting, he was panicking and mopping his brow, and I had to reassure him that it was all, you know, it was all jovial and in good spirit, and um, yeah, wasn't going to dent Primoz Rogovich's future earnings too much.
1: And and finally, finally, there's a moment. I think it's on the, it must be on the Granon stage. In fact, it is on the Granon stage where the sports director in the Jumbo Visma car just tells Jonas Fingergard, Podgy is out of water. You know, just sort of the cold ruthlessness of just that simple sentence, you know, and that really, uh, you know, whether a, a more casual viewer would sort of take that on board. But for me, it, we could become very blasé about the fact that basically the Tour de France is a contest of who remembers to eat and drink most effectively on the hardest stages you know it can come down to something as simple as that but just the ruthlessness of being you know kind of noticing and uh, passing on the information that, that their biggest rivals kind of run out of water and that this might be a small advantage i just it just gave an insight into the uh, you know the, the 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 margins and the levels and the motivations you know when they're uh, in the the you know the key stages of the tour and that isn't something that you would you know see really from any tv coverage or you wouldn't get from the podcast or you wouldn't get from a written piece and i think there were just a you know there was a moment like that in every episode that just made me kind of think ah you know that is an insight into the tour that i've not really seen quite as effectively before
0: well chaps three wine glasses out of five for me you finley Bottom line before we say goodbye.
6: Yeah, I would say we're maybe three.
1: three yeah, five? Three. line yeah. on three. Surely, surely it should be popcorn. But yeah, I'd say three eight three popcorn things out of five. There we are. Yeah, a good three, I would say, yeah. And and we're a tough crowd, aren't we? Let's face it. Yeah. You know, we're we're more we're...
0: metacritic than Rotten Tomatoes.
6: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but that's it you are you weren't super critical and super you know envious of that access and the, the money all of that you know <laughs> oh it, it just it just made me glamour think, you know
1: for just a a, a a fraction of their unused material to turn into a few friends of the podcast specials we'd i mean we'd snap the hand off wouldn't we
6: yeah
0: finley it's been a pleasure we'll have you back soon
1: thank you very much
0: thanks finley Thanks Lionel.
6: The Cycling Podcast was created in twenty thirteen by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Byrne.